is a disaster, a podcast about disasters and the music they make us listen to. I'm Peter, and I'm here with my co-host, Lee. Hi. And today, you're here for part two of our Tinmuth Electron oh, story. Right. It's been a couple of weeks. You had a Tragedy Tuesday in between for, for laughs. Yeah. And now we're right back to Donald Crowhurst. But first, a little bit of housekeeping. We're always amazed at the new listeners that we're getting. So thank you so much for joining us. Indeed. We hope that you enjoy what you're hearing. We think you are because a lot of you are subscribing. So thanks. That's Keep amazing. That coming. Yeah. If you're wondering the best way to help us, subscribe if you haven't already. Check us out on iTunes and leave a review. That helps us get noticed and helps us produce more of this great content. And most importantly, tell anyone that'll listen to listen to us. Mm-hmm. Tie them to a chair if you have to. Don't. <laughs> well, don't do that. You want to make sure they're still friends. But... That Just make them listen. Result in your own disaster. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Talking about you on this podcast. We are not responsible for your disaster. <laughs> <laughs> By now, we should have some new sweet merch on the website. Hey. So go check that out. Uh, we did it with uh, in collaboration with an amazing local artist here. Where we'll probably link his uh, information on the website. So check that out. Just a little... Again, if you, if you weren't here for part one, I recommend you go back and check out part one. Yeah. I feel like... I think I put these together in a way that they're interesting on their own. And I'll recap a little bit of the story, but I recommend you check out part one. This is an off-book disaster. So normally we take disasters from this book called Great Disasters, or I say normally, but we're doing this less and less. But yeah. the original impulse of the show was to take these disasters from a book called Great Disasters, published by Reader's Digest in 1989, and then <laughs> add our own research and tell you about them. This is one completely off-book. Off the sources that I used was a, ironically, book, but not... Anyway, there's a book called The Strange Last Voyage of Donald Crowhurst by Nicholas Tomlin and Ron Hall. A lot of great information. I picked what I thought were the most interesting parts, but if you are interested in this story, check it out. It's amazing. And there's also a documentary about it called Deep Water that you can find on YouTube. Mm. Super interesting. It's his last voyage because he he did it and he was successful. Exactly. And he didn't, felt like he didn't have to prove anything. He never up sailed again. He hung it up and had yeah. it. Exactly. That's why it's the last voyage. Nice. Don't read the name of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> wait. That's right. So... A lot happened in 1968. Yeah. Neil Young left Buffalo Springfield and released his debut album on November 12th. Okay. Yeah. Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated on June 6th. Mm. Apollo 8th. 8th. The 8th. (laughs) Apollo Apollo 8th. (laughs) Apollo the (laughs) 8th. Nope. Apollo 8 completed a successful trip to and orbit of the moon, where it took Earthrise, an iconic image of the Earth rising over the moon's horizon on Uh, August 23rd. I'm sure we've all seen it. And if you haven't, go check it out. Mm. Uh, Incidentally, the Apollo program was not without its disasters, and nor was NASA. Mm. So keep that in mind. Before all of these things, though, Donald Crowhurst sailed his ship, the Tinmouth Electron, out of port in the village of Tynmouth, England, at 3 p.m. on October 31st, 1968. And his voyage would take him around the world to claim the Sunday Times Golden Globe Prize and the 5,000 pounds that came with the achievement of being the fastest man to circumnavigate the Earth single-handedly without stopping. Or so he hoped. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit more about the competition. Yeah. We had Bill Leslie King, or Commander William Donald Alien King. Alien. (laughs) Alien King. I just... That's cool. Anyway, it's A E L I A N. A E L I A N. Okay, alien. Yeah, okay. So he was a Royal Navy officer and submarine commander that served on three vessels during the Second World War. Okay. And he died at the age of 102 in 2012. Wow. As, yeah. <laughs> Young yeah. in there. Good job. Yeah. We had Robin Knox Johnston, who's going to come up again, or William Robert Patrick Knox Johnson. That's a good name. Yeah. He's, he served in the Merchant Navy from 1957 to 1968. 
Okay. And he is in part the reason that Sunday Times had this Golden Globe race in the first place. Okay. Because he sought their sponsorship, but Sunday Times didn't want to sponsor a potential loser. So they were like, well, we'll just sponsor the race. Mm. And then anyone that wins, we win. Sure. You know, <laughs> money. Everyone wins. And then you had Bernard Mortessier, oh. a highly experienced French sailor who had spent most of his life at sea. And prior to the Golden Globe, he had already set the sailing distance record at... 14,216 nautical miles over 126 days. Okay. And at this point, nautical miles are a thing that have pissed me off because it's the thing that I feel like I should know and I don't know. So I'm going to do a mini sidebar about nautical miles right okay. here. Because I got angry at myself for not knowing like what a nautical mile is. Hey, it's It's okay. one of those things that always come up and I feel like people that know things about things know what a nautical mile is, right? And I like to think that I know some stuff. But that is I insanely never... unreasonable. Really? I don't know. I feel like it comes up it's one of those things that comes up off, like it's not so rare that it never comes up and it comes up often enough. It's kind of like why punch buggies are a thing, right? It's not like you never see one, but you see one rarely enough that you do get to punch someone every now and then. Yeah. So that's how I thought about nautical miles. You're a, hanging out with a lot of sailors, I guess. Well, not really. It's a lot just, of, lot of I don't know. Well, it's because it's, it's an air. Anyway, we're getting <laughs> off topic. <laughs> I don't know what they are either, so tell me. Here we go. So... It's a unit of measurement used in both air and sea travel. Okay. Historically, they were one minute of one degree of latitude at any line of longitude. So basically, it would just be like a subdivision of um, latitude. Okay. So I guess that means that the a nautical mile was longer at the equator than it was at the poles. I think that's how it would work. Okay, gotcha. So now it's been standardized to 1,852 kilometers or 1.15 miles. Okay. <sighs> got it. Now I know what now a nautical you can sleep mile tonight. <laughs> and while I was doing that, I also got pissed off at myself for not knowing what a knot was. Because you always hear about a ship traveling yeah, sure. however many knots. So it's also a unit of speed of measurement. One nautical mile per hour. So 1.8 kilometers or 1.15 miles per hour. Okay. <sighs> hmm. Now so we a knot know. is just a short Yeah. A knot. A knot is basically like if, if you want to know, if somebody tells you that a ship is going one knot, then it's going 1.8 kilometers an hour. Okay. <sighs> That's such a relief for me. Yeah. I don't know if it clearly wasn't bothering you as much as it was bothering me, but not knowing those two no, things I... would drive me nuts. Because I don't know, people tell me like a, a flying at a certain amount of knots, and I'm like, I feel like I should know what that is. I feel like, I mean, I feel like I shouldn't because well, I don't own a Gilligan hat. Or... Well, now you know now whether you I like know. it or not. Yeah. So I'm going to. Next time someone tells you knots, you can picture it. <laughs> if I don't forget five minutes from now. <laughs> so, Motesia and his wife sailed 26,328 kilometers in 126 days. So that's 16, uh, just over 16,000 miles in 126 days. Okay. And just for contents, the circumference of the earth is just over 40,000 kilometers. So they sailed just over halfway around the world in a third of a year. Mm. So that's, he knows what he's doing. He's, yeah. And then we had John Ridgway who was a captain in the Parachute Regiment, which is an elite airborne infantry regiment in the British Army. Okay. In 1966, he was a member of a two-man team that rode across the North Atlantic in a small 20-foot long boat, hmm. or a six-meter long boat. Hmm. It took them 92 days, and they were the second ever team to do this after George Harbo and Frank Samuelson in 1896. So they know what they're doing. Yeah. And then there were four other competitors who had similar credentials. And we had... Donald Crowhurst. Mm -hmm. What's he Discharged done from the Royal Air Force <laughs> for reasons that we heard about in the first part. Yep. Failing businessman and sailing hobbyist. <laughs> yeah. Sailed from... He sailed... Br what was it? Uh, Brund Brundle? Brund Br uh, Brundle to Tynmouth. To Tynmouth in 13 days. A trip that should take three. take three. Yeah. <laughs> so, to recap, 
The building of the Tinmouth Electron was fraught with turmoil and resulted in a boat that left dock half ready at best. Hmm. Crowhurst plunged himself and his family deep into debt while financing the construction of the ship. And he left behind a faltering business, his wife, and his four children. Without exaggerating, things went wrong immediately. <laughs> so you remember their buoyancy bag? He had this invention where yeah. if the ship started capsizing, then the electronics would inflate this bag on the main mast that would keep it from tipping over and right it. <laughs> yeah. So setting aside that it wasn't anywhere near ready, it was also in the way of the mainsail. So when they had mounted the sails, they basically wrapped this bag around it. So he couldn't lift the sails to basically, they, they towed him out of port yeah. and then he couldn't lift the sails to get anywhere else. <laughs> and on top of this, none of the sails were attached to the proper masts. So even if he could lift the sails, Why? the ship wouldn't go anywhere. <laughs> Oh so this screw up was so bad that he had to get towed back into port to fix the sails. <laughs> so Can we start it, over? <laughs> basically. My shoe's on time. So, you remember how I said he left at 3 p.m. on October 1st? Yeah. So at 4.52 p.m. on mm. October 31st, Crowhurst and the Tinmouth Electron set sail to claim the Sunday Times Golden Globe Prize <laughs> and the 5,000 pounds that came with the achievement of being the fastest man to sail. You get the point. Anyway. He actually you know, left at 4.50. You can make PM. that two hours up. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So Claire, his wife, stood at the launching point with her four children and didn't wave. She just watched her husband, the man who said he'd never leave her side <laughs> at their very first meeting, sail Get his half-finished boat. Smaller and smaller. Yeah, into the sunset, <laughs> okay. basically. Let's talk about the early voyage. <laughs> Crowhurst spent the first few days cleaning the massive disarray in his cabin. So if you remember, there was just like all this junk on the dock before he left. And right. towards the end, like you start off organizing it, but towards the end, I just need this on my ship. Just throw it in anywhere yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'll figure it out later. <laughs> he had so many supplies thrown about that he had to sleep on the floor for the first few nights. <laughs> Great start. Yeah. Nothing was where it's supposed to be. So he had piles of unlabeled Tupperware containers with stuff in them. Okay. So early voyage was just figuring out where everything was. And it was a tiny cabin. So it's nine by eight feet. And he was going to live in this for his entire nine month voyage. <laughs> Most of the items in the Tupperware containers were spares for his radio. Remember how we were talking about, basically, he had so much to do that he was paralyzed and didn't know where to start. So yeah. he focused on the one thing that was already his expertise, mm. because you get that hit of, you know, adrenaline and serotonin right. to your mind where you're doing this thing that you know how to do. And that convinces you that yeah, you've got yeah. everything under control. I know this. So on top of that, he, most of what he brought were spares for his radio. Okay. Because the radio is what he knows. <laughs> Remember how the Tinmouth Electron was supposed to be a technological marvel? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So as Crowhurst cleared and organized the cabin, every time he lifted the cushion under his seat to get at the storage, he'd reveal a nest of unconnected wires. <laughs> this was the magical computer, in quotation marks, that was supposed to monitor the voyage and compensate against any potential disasters. So oh. he didn't get anywhere near finishing that. <laughs> also... A massive knot had formed in the sail lines, resulting in a much slower progress right out of the gate. Okay. Going, going, going real great. well so far. Going great. One thing that Crowhurst didn't find during his organization was the tubing for the bilge pumps. You remember how we talked about the ship was divided into 10 different compartments and normally a ship has sort of one, when you have one hull, you have one, maybe a couple bilge pumps, but they sit at the bottom of that. Yep lowest point of the hull and yeah. they pump out water They'll that comes feed, in yeah. as happens. Like even on the biggest ships, there are tiny leaks. Some claim that during the preparations, they grabbed the tubing and other people say that it was left on the dock, but whether it was on the dock or not, Crowhurst didn't find it. And that <laughs> means that he didn't have a way of emptying his ship using the pumps of oh. any potential leaks. Okay. 
The self-steering mechanism on the Tinmouth Electron was already shaking itself to pieces. You remember our sidebar about <laughs> trimarans? They're yeah. fast, but because they're so fast, the vibrations typically mean that any mechanism for self-steering generally shakes itself apart. Oh, nice. So you have to constantly be manning the controls. Okay. Nobody told Crowhurst. Mm. Or they did and he didn't listen. Didn't care. The implication here is that for the rest of the 200 days of the voyage, he would either be repairing it over and over, or he would end up steering the ship himself constantly. Right, right, Which right. is not something you want to do for 200 days. For a one-man Yeah, for a one-man nonstop <laughs> voyage. Yeah. All of this, and he's still inside of England. He's nowhere near the South Atlantic. Right. He hasn't even passed the equator. So from these early days, the method he was using to pinpoint his location was flawed. He would take sun sights throughout the day with his sextant and compare them with nautical almanac that he had uh, to sort of figure out his position. Mm -hmm. The technique is reasonably accurate, but he could never quite get his bearings to line up with the evening sights that he would take of the stars. So already right off the bat, he's not, he's not sure exactly where he is. Right. And we have to remember 68, we're nowhere near GPS. Yeah. We don't have satellites telling us exactly where we are to with, I would just, no, I just heard about an app uh, mm -hmm. that has divided, this app maker divided the entire world into three by three meter squares. Okay. And you can tell somebody your position within <laughs> a three by three within area. Within your personal bubble. So harken back to a time with sextants and chronometers and not knowing exactly where you are. Yeah. Doing and then like add, add in the fact that Crowhurst is someone who's smart, but gets basic math wrong at the end of the day. <laughs> so he's, he doesn't know. I thought that might come home to roost. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So let's just recap when we could see, and he's facing a messy, chaotic ship, a self-steering device that's constantly shaking itself to bits, a boil that he had to lance himself, <laughs> a cabin that's begun to smell, sparking hygiene concerns, and synchronization issues between his chronometer, wristwatch, and deck watch. So that's important. It goes with our discussion about longitude and latitude and finding your location. Yeah. And we're actually going to talk about that a little bit more in some bonus content. That we'll talk about at the end of this. So stay tuned. Let's talk about Crowhurst's logs. So among the few items Crowhurst didn't neglect in his preparations alongside radio operation was reading books about others who had completed the long voyage at sea. Inspiration. So, exactly. So Crowhurst's logs and his recordings through the BBC hinted at a dichotomy early on. <clears throat> so the BBC gave him cameras and tape recorders. Okay. To document, <laughs> document the disaster. Basically. Originally, <laughs> yeah, like we talked about last time, they shifted the focus and they, BBC's like, this is not going to be a triumph, but there's still a story that's, that's going right. to make some money. It's so, television gold. Yeah. His BBC recordings often portrayed a kind of salty, take it on the chin kind of humor that you okay. would kind of expect from experienced sailors. And he <laughs> probably got that from reading all these books. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in fact, many of these recordings bore striking similarities to like entire passages from the very books he had read, including, <laughs> <laughs> including one by Chichester. Oh, so, no. Yeah. Oh, come on. But often the entries in the logbook would paint a truer picture. So complaints about the self-steering and the general condition of the boat. So huh. for the most part, he was still being honest with himself in the logs. Okay. For now. <laughs> when he was scared or concerned, he'd say so. Hmm. As the voyage went on, and things got increasingly bleaker, Crowhurst began using the BBC recordings as his positive thinking therapy. So he'd basically put on like the plucky sailor persona for the camera, and then the downtrodden victim would show up in the logs. Delusional. Well, <laughs> not quite cracks yet, but you've seen some bulges, okay. maybe, yeah, where yeah. cracks might show up. <laughs> so at one point on tape, he said, 
of course, single-handing has its compensations. So sailing single-handedly has its has its benefits. Some pros. No matter how schizophrenic you are, it's difficult to fall out with the crew. <laughs> <laughs> They're excellent people from the captain to the cabin boy. Yeah. Which, That's knowing all... how things end, as I do, okay. is already like, don't a... joke about... Anyway, <laughs> take this... Uh, take this with his earlier letter in which he himself pointed out that this kind of voyage requires a certain amount of mental stability. Mm. So early on when he was, if you remember from part one, he was petitioning to sail Gypsy Moth 1, which is the ship that Chichester used. One yeah. of the things he talked about is that these kind like he understands that this kind of voyage requires a certain amount of mental stability, uh -huh. which he has. He thinks. Well. <laughs> <laughs> After one particularly ebullient BBC recording, and kudos for myself for using the word ebullient. I get to trot that out too often. It's pretty <laughs> it's good. It's probably the first time I've ever said it out loud. <laughs> Crowhurst sat down to write a frank analysis of his situation in the logbook. So here we go. He okay. listed 11 items describing the current state of his voyage. How far in are we? Maybe, maybe England is fading in the distance. Okay. So, so not in the South Seas yet. So time-wise? Early on. Uh, I'd say within the first month. Okay. Yeah. First month. So no electronics. So he has no radio, mm -hmm. no emergency buoyancy <clears throat> bag, or any of the other computer components. Okay. No time signals because his chronometer was basically useless and he could use a radio to figure out the time, but he doesn't have it working. Uh -huh. And so that means he has no way to get a precise fix on his location because he can't make his sun sights and the star sights line up. Right. And he has no light. Hmm. He has leaky hatches in the floats. You remember those wooden things with the rubber that didn't fit properly in yeah. either one of the floats? Yeah. So those are leaking, obviously. Okay. He has incorrectly cut sails. So even though he got the sails roughly working, they're still not exactly how they should be. Uh-huh. The shroud placing and the chafe prevention is unsatisfactory. So basically on ships, you have these things that cover where the ropes are attached so that they don't chafe on other ropes and okay. things. That's, he, he admits that that's minor, but it's another thing that's worth considering. <laughs> Uh, he has no method of pumping out the float hatches. So if you remember, he doesn't have that hose. Yeah. So he has to do that manually. Okay. No method of pumping out the main compartment. So even his main compartment where he lives, mm. if it, if any water gets in there, it's a bucket that he's got to use. Okay. The aft bulkhead is leaking. So he's got another leak. Mm. Inadequate stowage, especially of perishables like rice and flour. So he doesn't have anywhere to put anything and keep it dry. Okay. And the self-steering mechanism needs constant attention to function. <laughs> Remember, uh, most of the leaks require manual bailing. So hmm. he's got a constant leak on his hands. That's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. In his logbook, under these 11, what I would call reasons to stop, not <laughs> yeah. like even concerns, but yeah. one of these is a reason to be like, nah, mm. can't do this for 200 more days. Yeah, yeah. He writes, this may look like a load of excuses for stopping. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nobody's going to blame you at this I point. I wouldn't call it an excuse. If I stop, I'll disappoint a lot of people. <laughs> Stanley Best, most important. Then fringe people, Rodney Hallworth, his publicity agent, the folks at Tinmouth who've supported the scheme and my own family. Notice the order. <laughs> Stanley Best, money. Right. Hallworth, literary agent and money. Yeah. Village of Tinmouth, title sponsor and money. And then family. That's not to say that he didn't love his family, <laughs> but... Priorities. Priorities. And he has never forgotten what giving up will do to his business and his family financially. Right. So... That's can't stop. Can't stop. stop. The log entry is basically Crowhurst arguing with himself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he talks about the strain on Claire. He weighs plans for stopping in South America or Africa or Australia or going back to the UK. But he always comes back to the issue of money and worry of being financially ruined. And he ultimately 
decides to delay the decision. So he'll go on, try to get the generator working and take it from there. But still, the main motivation for the generator is to have a working radio so that he can talk to Stanley Best and see if he can get out of buying the ship back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Eventually, Crowhurst got his generator working and therefore his radio. So he received updates about the status of the competition. All right. And (laughs) the competitors were dropping like flies. Oh, really? So Bill King, the Royal Navy submarine commander, was out and several others were out or limping. So I just know how he took that information. uh So it egged him on. Exactly. So maybe if he could just hold on, everyone would fail and he'd (laughs) win by default, right? You knew it was coming. Yeah. Not like, oh, they're bowing out and they're experienced. What hope do I have? Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. If I could just hold on, (laughs) all I have to do is limp around. Oh, it's the best way to win, too. (laughs) (laughs) It's like bunting. I don't know much about baseball, but it always pissed me off when someone would... Like, oh, you. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, no offense to any baseball players. I'm sure it's... Last time I played baseball was high school and I was terrible at it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm no ball player. So perhaps spurred by the 11-point list of crushing deficiencies or by the fact that one of the hatches that had flooded contained all of the coffee on his voyage. Oh, no. Well, in a book about a disastrous solo circumnavigation, (laughs) the only time that I audibly gasped and scared my (laughs) wife was when I heard about him losing all of his coffee. What? I know, right? (laughs) But anyway... Maybe spurred on by this list of deficiencies or losing all his coffee, Mm. Crowhurst initiated a new plan. On November 21st, after a week of indecision and puttering around off the coast of Madeira, near Morocco in Northern Africa, Mm -hmm. I think it's a Portuguese island, uh, Crowhurst spoke with his sponsor and creditor, Stanley Best. He didn't mention retirement, but he did mention generator problems that might lead to radio silence in the near future. Mm. On November 26th, Crowhurst wrote in his main log that he was obviously going to run out of space, quote unquote, and doubled up his writing, cramming as many words into tiny writing uh, as possible. Okay. <laughs> but he had four log books with and plenty of space. One of four. Yeah. So okay. he's not going to run out <laughs> unless he planned to use one of them for something else. For uh, some other kind of log. He's going to eat that book. Well, yeah, right. <laughs> he's not that strapped for food yet. <laughs> okay. So also, the entries in his main log suddenly became very neat and gave the impression of being copied from a draft. So for the most part, his navigational record is likely accurate up to December 5th. Okay. So there's various reasons, but one of the main indicators is that he had taken along a bunch of uh, bottles and pre-printed messages, like kind oh, of okay. message in a bottle kind of thing, yeah. where it says like who he was his position that he would fill in and then return this message for a reward to this address mm. or whatever. Mm. He stopped dropping those on December 5th. Okay. So shortly after these shifts, Crowhurst telegram Rodney Hallworth, his literary agent, with amazing news. <laughs> Not only had he sorted out all of his issues and was underway, <laughs> he had set a new single-handed distance record for a single day of, day of sailing. <laughs> Which, he's in a trimaran, so they go pretty fast. Uh-huh. This reversed the complete disinterest in Crowhurst shown by the media up to this point. So Crowhurst was happy, Hallworth was happy, Best was happy, his like Stanley Best, yeah, the sponsor. Yeah. And Chichester, you remember the guy who did it first? Sure. Thought this was total bullshit. <laughs> but, and he said so. Uh-huh. And we'll come back to that. Malarkey. In reality, in early December, Crowhurst began tracking his real voyage on a large sheet of paper in the cabin and eventually shifted to a false logbook. In a real logbook. He kept a separate cooked log on the voyage that he would tell everyone he was taking. This was no trivial task. 
And it was crazy complex because it involved calculations based on imagined positions and then basically backtracking daily and then coming up with all the conditions <laughs> that would take him to where he says he's supposed to be. Dude, shouldn't you be worried about bailing water? Well, he's worried about your... that too. He's got a lot on his plate <laughs> at this point. He's got a lot of but, work to do in but a But also day. like, dude, he also supplemented this false log with manufactured commentary. So every day he would be like, you know, had to fix the whatever. All right, all right. For the record-breaking day, he chose a number that wasn't too much higher than the previous record of 220 miles. So I think he says that he went like 224 miles mm. in a single day. Okay. So it wasn't crazy high. And he had to basically hypothesize the wind and sea conditions required for that record uh. and then recorded them in his false log. And in case there was any doubt about what he was doing, he had a table with columns for the day on his scrap log that basically has like claim distance and actual distance. <laughs> Just so we can keep track. If only we use his powers for good. Right? <laughs> so there's some evidence that he was still ambiguous about the choice to make a false voyage at this point. Uh -huh. But eventually time forced his hand. Because the further he gets along his imagined voyage, he can't just show up in a port somewhere that doesn't make sense. Right? Right, right, right. If he pops up in Africa and he says he's in the Indian Ocean. Yeah. Like, what? I thought, Are there I thought you were thousands of miles away. Yeah. Right? So he's locked in at this point. Mm-hmm. As he charted his false course, he began sending deliberately false telegrams to Rodney Hallworth. And the first one said, through the doldrums. No, he wasn't. And mm. the doldrums are an equatorial region in the Atlantic, characterized by sudden storms. So oh, it's okay, just an okay. area. Over the equator. Nope. Nope. No, he wasn't. <laughs> and sailing fast again. Nope. No. Sure wasn't. Also not. Let's talk about Christmas. So on Christmas, I love Christmas. Crowhurst made, well, yeah, okay, good. good. <laughs> Think about this next Christmas. Okay. <laughs> on Christmas, Crowhurst made a recording for the BBC. Mm. It was mostly, again, like a public performance, like he, like he generally did to boost his own morale. Mm. But listening to it, it's clear that the cracks are starting to show. Okay. So his voice shifts from brave to melancholy from sentence to sentence. Uh -huh. And he says, he says a lot of things, but he says things that like certain phrases, he says, not that I'm under any great stress, but you know, whatever. And then not that I'm depressed or feeling sorry for, for myself by any means, but, <laughs> but. you know, whatever. <laughs> so clearly isolation and the weight of his deceit are beginning to take their toll at this point. And you can hear this recording? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, I think, actually, I'm not sure. I have to check that. It was, I, I read a transcript, it? but I don't know oh, if you can okay. read it. Yeah. If there is, we'll probably have a link for yeah, it. Yeah, if there's a, if, if I find a, the actual recording, there'll be a link. Yeah. If not, there's a transcript and maybe I'll, I'll look into posting that too. <laughs> so clearly, again, like I said, isolation and the weight of his deceit are beginning to take their toll uh -huh. and we're nowhere near the end of the voyage. We're two mm months in. We're in December, not even two months. Christmas Eve, Crowhurst made a radio call to his wife and no indications of anything wrong or anything, no deceit or anything. He just wanted to talk to her. Sure. He spent the early Christmas morning listening to the radio static because there's nothing really going on. <laughs> At 5.28 a.m., he writes in his logbook, size heard. So 55 days in with no human contact other than brief radio calls and telegrams, and yeah. now he's hearing sighs in the static, mm. which is always a creepy image. Mm. <laughs> <clears throat> his trip would take 188 more days. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> back home, Christmas wasn't going much better. So Crowher's son, Roger, this was... this chilled me to the bone and maybe it'll have the same effect back home his son roger was having nightmares every night of his father standing in his bedroom doorway staring at him oh my god and in my mind i added the little crowhurst is standing in the in the doorway dripping wet staring at his <laughs> yeah, son right? that's what i pictured oh. <laughs> it just gives me shivers now right how old's this kid uh this was like four or five yeah around there yeah yep. oh my god so creepy yeah 
two days before Christmas, the stable beside their home mysteriously burned down. And that's where Crowhurst's workshop was, mm. where he did a lot of work for electron utilization. Mm. Claire was overwhelmed with running the business, electron utilization, and couldn't go out and earn money for herself. And the business was failing on top of that. Right. They were hoping that the business would generate enough money to keep things going, but yeah. it wasn't. Three weeks later, Crowhurst sent a telegram with these words, generator hatch sealed, transmissions when possible. Crowhurst needed to stop transmitting because there was a chance his real location could be calculated from the radio towers receiving the broadcast. Because <laughs> if you, you can triangulate and figure uh -huh, out where uh -huh. someone is, oh, if you're not God. careful, so he had to stop broadcasting. <laughs> so with this telegram, Crowhurst launched himself into complete radio silence for the next 11 weeks or nearly three months. Oh, good. Three months without talking to a single soul. Okay. During this silence, Rodney Hallworth had to feed the newspaper something. So basically this sparked wild speculation about Crowhurst's actual position, putting him further and further away from his true position. Mm -hmm. Crowhurst must have known that this was happening too. So he knew that every day that passes, he's he's in, he's all in. Yeah. This whole time, Chichester isn't drinking the flavor aid. <laughs> and I know, I know I'm a nerd for saying flavor aid, but technically <laughs> at Jonestown, it wasn't Kool-Aid. They didn't even spend money on Kool-Aid. It was flavor aid. It was a knockoff. Yeah. So okay. when you say drinking the Kool-Aid... You mean flavor. You mean flavor aid. And next time I bring this up, you can punch me in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Still going to say cool it. Fair enough. Still say it. It's just, it's the saying at this point. Yeah. But anyway, so Chichester had written a bunch of articles. We're not going to read them all, but uh, I've got a summary here. Uh, bullshit. <laughs> is basically what they all said. Basically, it sums it up. Yeah. So basically, Hallworth would say like, he's here. And Chichester's like, nah, nah bro. No. Nah, not even. No. No. Impossible. No. So meanwhile, Crowhurst got interested in birds and fish while he was trying to ignore the growing split in his starboard float, <sighs> his resulting in increased flooding and more and more time spent bailing. Okay. So every passing day, he's bailing out more water because he's got damage in one of his floats. Oh, great. His fascination with birds mixed with his increasingly melancholy state of mind manifested itself in a fable that he titled The Misfit. <laughs> it's about a bird, the misfit, that chose to fly too far and ultimately died trying to reach land. Okay. Probably, probably, probably no, no deeper meaning there. No, it's Don't worry just, about it. yeah. Just words. Just words. <laughs> he also wrote a poem to accompany it about mm. the misfit. I'm going I'm to read that. Okay. Save some pity for the misfit, fighting on with bursting heart, not a trace of common sense, his is no common flight. Save, save him some pity, but save the greater part for him that sees no glimmer of the misfit's guiding light. <laughs> so pity the misfit, but pity, pity those that don't understand his motivations more. Wow. A little bit of a shift here. <laughs> Nelson Messina had spent most of his life living by the Salado River in Argentina. So uh, he knew most every ship that made its way along the river past his house. Okay. So you can imagine his surprise when mm. on the morning of March 6th, 1969, Nelson watched a trimaran drop anchor in three feet of water in the Salado River <laughs> and rapidly run aground as the tide went out. <laughs> so growing increasingly concerned with the split in the starboard float that he constantly had to bail, yeah. Crowhurst had decided to chance a secret landing in Argentina to get it fixed. <laughs> wow. People. Right? Ballsy. Yeah. <laughs> People, exactly. So Crowhurst didn't speak Spanish and none of the officials that he encountered spoke English. Oh God. He managed to communicate to them through exaggerated sign language that he was in a race and that his ship needed repairs. <laughs> I can just picture that. Oh. Wave it. Like how do you mime... I'm in a trimaran. Isolated yeah. for weeks. Mm -hmm. You've got human contact. But it's people, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, 
he can he got connected with some Argentinian Coast Guard officials who understood English, thankfully. Oh man. So he told them that he was in a race from England, that he had just sailed around Cape Horn, so he just sailed around South America. And he drew them a map of his voyage. Okay. Of what allegedly he had uh done yeah. up to this point. Yeah. Also, interestingly, he drew a second map reminiscent of the one he had shown his friend jokingly during his maiden voyage, <laughs> where he said that he could sail in circles around in the South Atlantic if all else failed. Uh-huh. Never explained that one, but he drew that one as well. Okay. So he sat with his new Argentinian friends into the night, sipping wine, drinking coffee, and being content. Mm. They later, the, the Argentinians, would later describe him as the most mercurial man they'd ever met. So like... <laughs> Hopping from manic to depressed. Okay. One moment to the next. Oh, and this likely reflects his mental state, living with the knowledge that he'd be back on his ship soon. <laughs> right? Because this is temporary. He's got he's to finish it. Yeah. Ultimately, he patched the Tinmouth Electron and resumed his false journey in the Southern Atlantic. And interestingly, so in when Chichester was writing about his voyage, he wrote a book afterwards. He mentioned that the most difficult psychological aspect came after setting sail from Australia. Because he had spent so much time by himself, right. and he spent time around people, mm-hmm. and now he's got to spend... Do it again. Do it again. So you can only it's imagine at this worse. point where he has spent mm-hmm. March now, right? So okay. Christmas is when he made the decision, and he like fed the world all of, all of this bullshit about yeah. what he's actually doing. And he hasn't talked to anybody, and now we're in March. Mm-hmm. He spent all that time by himself, and mm-hmm. now he lands, lands in Argentina and has dinner and coffee and wine with human beings that speak <laughs> English. <laughs> now he's got to go back out to sea. on that. Yep. boat so birds and the fish back on the boat yeah well exactly Crowhurst passed the time a few ways so he sailed as south as possible to get footage for the BBC that looked like he had sailed through Cape Horn okay he just basically the sailed the other side enough. of it yeah until basically until he, he waited until he saw water that was choppy enough yeah. to be able to there pass it is. just came through look right. at that yeah look at that oh. yeah <laughs> that was something that was rough <laughs> he also started reading some of the literature he brought with him and by reading, I mean obsessing over a copy of Einstein's Relativity. Oh, good. Particularly a passage where Einstein makes a mathematical assumption. So Crowhurst took this to mean that humans have the ability to dictate the laws of nature of their own free will. Sure. His emotional and mental instability is rapidly sliding into something we'd classically call madness at this point. <laughs> <laughs> because he basically, re- he go- opens Relativity, reads it, where as you do in any other mathematical problem, you make assumptions. Like it wasn't as basic as saying x equals this right but it's along the lines of x equals this or like i'm assuming that this is the case and crowhurst reads it to say oh you're manifesting this in nature by just assuming it uh-huh uh-huh oops oops april 30th 1969 crowhurst broke his radio silence and announced that he was in the race april 30th so another month by himself okay without talking to anybody so now he's finally breaking radio silence uh-huh the estimates based on his fraudulent journey put him in a position to have a neck and neck almost photo finish race with Tetley, who was one of the other competitors, uh-huh. as being the fastest one to circumnavigate. So at this point, Knox Johnson had already won. He'd finished. Okay. Uh, so he was the first person to do it. But now the 5,000 pound prize was for the fastest person to do it. But how would that be the fastest if someone had already finished? Well, if you, well, so because Knox Johnson left in like May or whatever, okay. he was the first person to make it around. But because there were other people going, they might do it faster than he did. Oh, okay, okay. So I think... Actually, if I remember correctly, Knox Johnson's pace wasn't, he didn't, he didn't go really that quickly. Uh So it's possible based on the estimates that Crowhurst was feeding everyone, that Crowhurst could win. And Tetley was legitimately almost able to win as well. Right, right, right. 
So basically, the speed record was up for grabs, even though the first person prize wasn't. Okay. Basically, it seemed likely that Crowhurst could win <laughs> because he had chronically misrepresented his position and overreported <laughs> it. Yeah. So after reestablishing radio contact, Crowhurst was inundated with messages about excitement about his pace. Okay. So among these was a telegram from Rodney Hallworth saying, Tinmouth agog at your wonders, whole town planning huge welcome. <laughs> Which, I mean, Crowhurst, Crowhurst, as we've established, he's not, he's not like a psychopath. Like he has a conscience, yeah. right? So yeah. he's feeling, he's already feeling guilty about the fact that he's doing a false voyage. Mm -hmm. At this point, he just wants to get home. Sure. Uh, and save face. Yeah. So getting a telegram saying that you've got this giant... <laughs> You got, everyone's waiting for you to come back oh, yeah. and you might win. Can't believe it. That's not going to help your conscience. <laughs> <laughs> so each message was like a guilty spike driving into Crowhurst's conscience. Okay. This last one might not have been the one that broke this camel's back, but it didn't help. <laughs> and there's a few more that come. <laughs> so Crowhurst did some reckoning. At this point, he had convinced himself that his false logs wouldn't hold up under scrutiny. He was doing a pretty good job at mm. keeping them going. But if someone really took a close look... Like Chichester might. Yeah. <laughs> if you remember, he's just waiting. Mr. He's like wringing his hands, being yeah. like, show this me your I books. Yeah. <laughs> and he was probably right. Yeah. But nobody combs the logs of the person that comes in second. I so he decided to lose to Tetley. Oh, okay. The guy who's, he's in a neck and neck That's, race with. Uh... It's a good, it's a good uh, yeah. tactic, I think. A testament to trimorans. Tetley was also sailing a trimoran and making good speed. Okay. So he was surprised by Crowhurst's reemergence just past Cape Horn because nobody heard anything from him. And now it's like, oh crap, he's actually doing really well. Right. So he put on the burners because he thought the race was neck and neck. <laughs> but he burned a little too hard and his boat got battered by the new pace and gradually began disintegrating. Oh. Until on May 21st, his port float, so one of the, one of the two floats on either side, yeah. tore away from his ship and he capsized. And Tetley sat in his rubber life raft and though he didn't know it, he watched all hope of Crowhurst's safe return to England sink along with the ship that had taken him most of the way around the world. <laughs> so there goes his plan of coming in second. Crowhurst's mm. plan. Mm. So Crowhurst learned of Tetley's withdrawal from the race and his own certain victory. And this pretty much broke him. <laughs> so he retreated completely from sailing and into his own inner world. He just okay. gave up sailing at this point. Okay. As the summer months approached and the heat increased, he spent most of the days naked, basically just wearing his watch, mm -hmm. and eventually just shifted to a nocturnal existence, just only oh. ever okay. awake at night. All right. At this point, his self-steering mechanism was completely destroyed, which meant that he could only ever sleep for a few hours at a time because he always had to be manning the ship. Yeah. His food was going moldy. And on top of this, his radio stopped working. So uh -huh. before he chose not to talk to anybody and now he was cut off. Basically. Right. So 16 hours a day sitting alone in his boiling hot cabin, talking compulsively into a tape recorder also given to him by the BBC. Yeah. 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 So he could receive telegrams, but not respond. So he kept getting like salt in the wound telegrams where, so he, he got one where he received a telegram telling him that network television was arranged for the day of his arrival. <laughs> he was now sailing through the Sargasso sea as well. Okay. Which is covered in strings of weed and makes it kind of like an eerie sort of area. Mm. It actually, it's actually reminiscent of uh, the Dead Marshes in Lord of the Rings, which is part of the ancient battlefield of the Battle of Daggerlad between the last alliance of elves and men and the forces of Mordor. Where the faces are. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah. That's cool. So it's a little bit, that's the image that you can conjure. Okay. Shortly thereafter, he recorded his last spoken words to the world. Among them, manic euphoria. Mm. I feel tremendously fit. I feel as if I could realize all those ambitions I nurtured as a boy, like playing cricket for England. I feel on top of the world, tremendously fit. <sighs> Which, good. 
Good. Good. Yeah. That's bodes well. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In the two weeks that followed, gripped by an irrepressible urge, Crowhurst wrote a 25,000 word philosophical testament in his logbook. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it all. <laughs> uh, but he claimed he had a message that needed to be revealed to the world and that he had a feeling that he only had seven days to write it. This is another starting something new when the other thing is not finished. Pretty Can much. Get a yeah. little boost of... Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember, <laughs> yeah, that's his tendency. Like if, <laughs> if one thing is failing, he gets, he like throws, him all, throws himself all into something new. In this philosophical essay, he expanded on his early ideas, you might remember these, that the mind can exist without the body. Remember Mm. how he used to talk to his friends about Mm -hmm. that? He also came to the terrifying realization that in order to test this hypothesis, he'd have to kill the body. So he writes here, I have one quote, if I stipulate of my own free will, and that's a quote pretty much from relativity, where like that's the wording that Einstein used to make an assumption. Okay. So if I stipulate of my own free will that by learning to manipulate the space-time continuum, man will become God and disappear from the physical universe as we know it, I'm providing the system with an impulse. So by putting this idea out, I'm making it so. (laughs) The choice is simply this. Do we go on clinging to the idea that God made us or realize that it lies within our power to make God? (laughs) So basically forget worshiping God and become one. (laughs) And this was echoes of, I don't know if you remember me mentioning this in our film fiasco episode about sunshine. Mm. But at the time I was researching this and I said that this screams pinbacker to me from sunshine. If you're not familiar with the movie. I've been thinking about pinbacker a little bit during this. Check out sunshine if you haven't. (laughs) Yeah. At the very least, listen to our episode about the movie sunshine Mm. or listen to sunshine. But like this, these words and this kind of mentality is striking me more and more as pinbacker. Could have very well been an inspiration. The idea of being like, at this case, Crowhurst's not the last man alive, but he's a man who's been alone by himself for a long time. as far as he's concerned. Yep. (laughs) Just like pinbacker and sunshine. Cut off. So it's still hypothetical ranting at this point though. Mm -hmm. So he receives another telegram from Rodney Hallworth saying that a BBC meeting is arranged. Over 100,000 people are waiting for him at Tynmouth for his arrival. Wow. And actually, well, yeah, exactly. And Uh, later after the fact, Hallworth would say, my God, I think I may have killed Donald Crowhurst with that telegram. (laughs) (laughs) So after this telegram, Crowhurst's writings went even more off the rails, reflecting his complete mental breakdown. Okay. So he became obsessed with an idea he called the cosmic mind. Mm. In another 12,000 words of writing, he rationalized his wish to remove his intelligence into a more satisfying incorporeal form. Mm. All of this within three days. So he writes, three days later, I understood everything in nature, in myself, in all religion, in politics, in atheism, agnosticism, communism, and systems. So he just knows everything. Mm-hmm. I knew everything from Julius Caesar to Mao Zedong. I had a complete set of answers of the most difficult problems now facing mankind. Great. Good. Yeah. Come back and tell us about it, please. <laughs> yeah. Could use that. Skimming ahead a little bit, his logbook writings paint the picture of a mind descending deeper and deeper into madness. No and way. again, if you're super... if I'm, I'm hoping that you're getting super interested in this to the point of reading the book because it is a fascinating read, but there's a lot of times where I would feel like mentally exhausted <laughs> after reading some of these passages. Yeah. Just, like you got to step back and... Yeah. You need to <laughs> just, go like hug my son or something. Yeah. This <laughs> gets dark and... Right. Yeah. So sprinkle some extreme paranoia at this point and not about being caught necessarily. It's about persecution against his own importance as someone that would make a finer God than any in heaven. Well... That'll, that's that's always going to be people who are yeah. trying to cut you down. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> After writing out a virtual confession of his entire deception, he wrote a final tormented passage in his logbook. I will only resign this game if you will agree that on the next occasion that this game is played, it will be played according to the rules that are devised 
by my great God, who has revealed at last to his son, not only the exact nature of the reason for games, but has also revealed the truth of the way of the ending of the next game that it is finished. It is finished. And then scrawled in all caps. It is the mercy. <laughs> wow. Uh -huh. Oh man. So there are three following log entries. And in the last one at 11, 20 and 40 seconds, there is no reason for harmful. And then it just stops. Oh, that's eerie. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> On the evening of July 10th, nine months after she had stood at the end of a dock in Tinmouth, Claire received word that the Tinmouth Electron had been found abandoned. Wow. Theories have swirled around about what really happened to Donald Crowhurst. Mm -hmm. Some say he's alive and well in South America. Some say he swam the 700 miles or 1,100 kilometers to the nearest island from where the boat was found. But <sighs> none, are, some, none are likely. That's right? some people. It always comes up, right? Yeah. <laughs> The psychologists that have examined his writings concluded that they couldn't have been written as a hoax and are demonstrative of a mind broken by solitude and crushing stress. Okay. The media didn't hold back. So news of his deception and suicide filled the papers as soon as they found out what had actually happened. Like, oh, feeding the BBC frenzy. were yeah. cashing out on their investment. Basically. <laughs> I knew it. The chairman of the Council of Tinmouth didn't lose the score. So he, after the whole affair, he said... The whole affair had brought Tinmouth about 1.5 million of free national and international publicity. <laughs> so it's all good. Yeah. It's all gravy. <laughs> we got, you're great. <laughs> and then he added, we have had this very cheaply and I hope the town appreciates it. <laughs> have you though? <laughs> because this is a man that clearly descended into madness yeah, after yeah. months of solitude. Yeah. Not um, cheap for some. Other side of the coin, though, Robin Knox Johnson. So after all this happened, he also ended up being the fastest man, and he got the five thousand pound prize. Remember, because he came the closest. Uh, nobody else finished. Oh, so, so he was. Well, he, yeah, he made it he to won. shore. <laughs> yeah, he made it to shore, so he was the fastest. Uh, yeah, he donated all five thousand pounds to Claire Crowhurst. What which, a class right? act! Yep. All right. So he's like one of the few characters that didn't gleefully dive yeah. onto the corpse of Donald Crowhurst. Yeah. Well, like, help the town. Yeah. So yeah, basically. Thanks, fella. Uh, so basically. Not basically, because it's two parts, but that's the story of Donald Crowhurst and the Tinmouth Electron. Good Lord. Right? I I, I felt like I didn't have much to contribute because I was just listening. <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, and great. then what? And then what? And then and what? Then, and then what? And then what? And that's kind of that's <laughs> how I designed it. But usually there's more room for back and forth. But uh, this was uh, a book. Maybe now you see why when I watched that documentary and read the book, I was like, riveted by it yeah i didn't understand Damn. the meaning of people saying being riveted by something until i came across this story <laughs> and not being it like not being able to put the book down and not being able to look away from the documentary i mean it's like a it's a classic theme in 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 literature and fiction i mean you can talk about heart of darkness and right from that apocalypse now but yep. just that sort of literally and figuratively going down the river and not yep. coming back. So yep. an example of it in nonfiction, like, re, a, yep. a, you know, a real example of it is yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. Just, and it's there's so much that is relatable, no matter like none of us have sailed around the world. I'm assuming if you have get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. Tell us <laughs> about that, it. It's awesome. <laughs> but I'm assuming that none of us have sailed around the world, but we've all been in situations where we've gotten to a point in some kind of endeavor, whatever the endeavor is, where we know that we're in over our heads, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but we've also committed. And yeah. now there are people expecting something to happen and we can't let them down. Right. And maybe you've put money in and you don't want to have it wasted. Mm -hmm. 
so or effort or time or effort or, or time or we've all gotten excited about something or we've all gone into something maybe being overconfident and not realizing it at the time so there's so many bits of this that strike a chord exactly but then it's those extra little steps where yeah. i would never you know i i maybe I, maybe i get into sailing one day but i would never consider sailing around the world right or you know i'm I like driving, but I probably wouldn't drive a Formula One car because I'd smash it into the first wall. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. Or I, I, I don't know. There's some other analogy, but you know, just nothing where the risks are just yeah outweigh the you know the rewards or yeah. anything. Yeah. We, we, we are not you and I are not like that. Like, yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. But then on the other hand, what I also thought about this whole time is that. People like, it's also topical because this is all 1968, 1969 when they landed on the moon. Like people like Crowhurst and the people that try to sail around the world, like Chichester and Knox Johnson that both did it. Mm -hmm. Those are the people that take humanity to the moon and, you know, people that are willing to strap themselves to a rocket that was invented last year and get blasted into space (laughs) and spend four days flying to the moon and doing all this crazy stuff. So like the, the... The impulse and the type of character is important, I think, for humanity. But every now and then you get, you know, this kind of thing, which demonstrates that it can go both ways, right? Yeah, well, the the, the overconfidence yeah. just sort of overshadows everything where yeah. the people who, like you said, go yeah. to the moon or climb Everest or something, usually it's a life's work. Yeah. And not yeah. necessarily for that specific goal, just right. in general, like... Yep. You know, years of preparation. Yep. You know. Not, and not to mention circumstance. Like yeah. I, this comes up in the context of, uh, I was talking about Olympic athletes uh, athletes recently and the yeah. idea that uh, you can have people that, you can train just as hard as an Olympian mm-hmm. and maybe you're very similar in body type and composition, but at the end of the day, the guy who gets first place might have a thigh bone that's an inch longer or half yeah. an inch longer. And that's what gave him the advantage. Yeah, maybe. So the people that went to the moon, they had the best training. They were lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And then they had something else. Like Neil Armstrong had some possibly superhuman ability to stay cool under pressure. And that's why he's the guy that got them onto the moon. Yeah, exactly. Right? Or not by himself, but you know what I mean? So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Music. so do you want to go first for this one again sure okay so here's some music inspired by this disaster inspired by this disaster so um like we said last week i I had no idea what the the uh subject matter was i just sort of had keywords from peter like for part one pick something like this and part two i think it was just i think you had mentioned fever dream and madness (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so uh i went with a song by a it's a band called chrome Okay. Uh, a really great band from San Francisco, yeah. uh, started in the late seventies and went sort of throughout the eighties. Yep. Um, and they were sort of a precursor to industrial music. Like they played sort of a form of punk music, but a lot of electronics going on right. and just generally overall, very strange. Yeah. So the song I picked is the title track from the album blood on the moon. Okay. Came out in 1981. Yeah. And, uh, it's instrumental and it actually works great because it, it sort sort of has this sort of hypnotic almost like you're bobbing on the ocean and just 
you know, cast away. Uh, and uh, it's just this hypnotic sort of bass line that goes over and over, but and and throughout there's just weird sounds. Right. So yeah, it, it kind of works. Awesome. Uh, being isolated and descending into madness. That's perfect. <laughs> I'm sure you heard it now too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went with um, a band or a, an artist call calls himself the Hacks and Cloak. Yeah. Think of you've probably heard of them. Yeah. It's a guy named uh, Bobby Curlick. Okay. So he's worked with uh, The Body, which I mm-hmm. know we both like, Bjork, okay. uh, Atticus Ross, who's worked on some awesome soundtracks with right. Trent Reznor. Yeah. Also, he did the soundtrack to Midsummer, Right. Under his actual name, Bobby Curlick. Okay. Which is an amazing movie, by the way. Yes. If you like disasters and you like weird shit. If you like stuff that's insanely fucked. So good. <laughs> so good. If you like Hereditary. Check it out. Especially. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, so the album is self-titled The Hacks and Cloak from 2011. And yep. the song I picked is Disorder. Okay. It's a 10 minute long track, so we'll get anywhere near playing the whole thing. But it's basically kind of same idea, feverish and foreboding at the beginning, but then in the middle, it kind of picks up with this beat that's played on the strings of like cellos and, and stuff. Okay. Uh, but it kind of gets this dark determination to it in the middle of the track, mm-hmm. which I kind of hmm. thought about, you know, Crowers coming up with this plan to falsify his voyage yeah, and yeah, you know, yeah. executing it. <laughs> and then at the end, again, it descends back into the sort of feverish red kind of strings so okay. i think that that's that's pretty appropriate yeah. for the story yeah and you probably heard some of that there too so mm. next time mm. on to a brighter topic we're mm. going to be looking ahead <laughs> far ahead far far ahead to how it all ends oh all of it oh the final disaster all of it. <laughs> so tune in for that one. Yeah. We got a Tragedy Tuesday in the meantime, but that's, that's, and we're going to have a special guest for that one too. So for the, for the, not the Tragedy Tuesday, for the, for the how far it ahead, ends. The far how it ahead. Ends. Yeah. The super exciting, happy existential dread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so again, thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you want to know how to help us out, check us out on iTunes and or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That'd be super helpful. You can find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at This Disaster Pod. And you can find it all in one place on our website, www.thisdisasterpod.com, where you can also find a link to some bonus content. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned in the middle, there's a couple little things that came out while doing this research that we thought were super interesting, but didn't quite fit into the already two-part episode on the Tin Myth <laughs> Electron. But if you want to know more about some of the cool aspects of this, then uh, check that out. It's on our website. There's also some new sweet merch, if I do say so myself. So check that out. Sweet. And yeah, come back uh, come back next week for some more disasters. Yeah. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.